0: 39 as we're going back a little bit the french reformer a guy called john calvin he returned to the city of geneva after a period of exile and banishment from that place and on the first sunday of his return you can imagine what it was like all the eyes of the city were on him And they're wondering, what is Calvin going to do? They're waiting to see as he ascends the pulpit in a church in Geneva. What is he going to do? Is he going to issue this big, incredible rebuke to the city for treating him this way and for exiling him? Do you know the story? Do you know what John Calvin goes on to do? John Calvin just goes on to pick up where he had left off. Two and a half years previously, he preaches on the very next verse from from where he had left off. I love that. I think that's absolutely wonderful. This congregation just picking up exactly where they had left off after quite a substantial break. That's Geneva. Well, in some ways, I guess that's what you and I are doing today, isn't it? I hope you see what I mean. Uh, A number of months ago in the church here, we took a break from our studies in mark's gospel thankfully not because i had been sent into exile or banishment uh, but, but because it was the summer months and because we were wanting to look at other portions of scripture but do you see what it is that we're doing today from the reading do you see what we're doing we are doing a john calvin today we are doing a geneva because as a congregation we are picking up from exactly the point where we had left things a number of months ago. Okay, that's what we're doing. That's the plan just now. Suppose I should say this, though, that it wasn't just some sort of random arbitrary point where we chose to break in Mark's gospel. It wasn't random. We didn't just just decide, okay, we've had enough, let's take a break. What you probably know, you should know, I think, is that Mark's gospel splits neatly into almost two similarly sized parts. Two parts. Almost two halves, Mark's Gospel. The first half, the bit that we've already looked at deals with what? Deals with the establishment of the power and the authority of Jesus of Nazareth. The second half the bit that we're going to look at now deals with—it mm, deals much more overtly with Jesus' passion, with the with the suffering of our Lord, with his suffering and death. Okay, and I think if, if you put your mind to it, you can actually see that distinction in Mark's gospel, just in the way that Jesus travels in this book. What do I mean by that? Well, cast your mind back to the first eight chapters of Mark. How did, do you remember, how did Jesus travel? There was a lot of what seemed to be almost apparently impulsive journeying, wasn't there? Like he would, he would perform a miracle on one side of Galilee. Then he would go to the other side of Galilee and perform another miracle. And then what would he do? He'd come back again. And i would maybe perform a miracle on Galilee itself. There was a lot of crisscrossing back and forth across the Sea of Galilee. Okay? I need you to understand that from this point here, that changes. From this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus clearly has a fixed destination in mind. And from these verses we're looking at this morning, from here on in, Jesus quite clearly has his eyes set on Jerusalem. So I suggest we get to the text. And so I would invite you to please, if you haven't already done so, if you would turn to Mark's gospel, to Mark 8, uh, 31, and I have it open in front of you. As you're turning there, I'll say a second little thing in introduction. It's not just Mark's gospel that splits into two. It's also this portion of scripture that you've got here in front of you. This uh, portion of scripture, it kind of neatly folds in the middle. And so you, you can anticipate what I'm going to do. You can anticipate what I'm going to say, hopefully. Uh, because it folds in the middle, there's not going to be two, there's not going to be three rather, four, five, six points of the sermon. Instead, what we'll do is we'll split it down the middle. There will be two headings to today's sermon. Just the two. the first of which is this. We're going to notice here, we're going to see a shock about messiahship. You got it? A shock about messiahship. Okay, let's make a start here, shall we? Um, Now, if we are going to understand what we're soon going to see be the... (coughs) bewilderment the the shock of the disciples at what jesus has to see here the first thing that you and i have got to do is we have got to remember what has just happened uh, in this book that's why i got adrian to read the previous bit what has just happened in this text Do you remember it do you see it in the background peter has just declared jesus to be whom the christ I mean, he's just declared Jesus to be the Messiah, the one that that, that Jesus, uh, that the Jews rather, have been waiting for. So there's that momentous, cataclysmic moment has just occurred. Then what you've got to do is you've got to add to the mix the title that Jesus uses for himself here in verse 31. Have a look at verse 31. Jesus refers to himself there as... Do you see what it is? The son of man. So, let me ask you, do you know who the son of man was? Like if you think scripturally, you think Old Testament, and I say to you, the son of man. What do you, what do you think? Where do you go here? Friends, the son of man was the great figure that appeared in the book of Daniel. He appears in the the prophet's great vision, the Son of Man. And who was the Son of Man? Well, he was a human figure that appears in this prophecy. And he approaches the Lord God Almighty, or as Daniel calls him, the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days bestows on the Son of Man power. An authority, such authority, it says in Daniel, over all the nations, authority over all peoples. So this is what we've got to do if you put those two things together, the Christ and the Son of Man. Maybe, maybe you begin to see why the disciples are so shocked here, do you? Because think about it. The disciples are excited here, aren't they? Can you imagine how excited they are? They've just realized this is the Christ we're following. And maybe he's going to just now just overthrow the Roman Empire. And what is he saying? He's the son of man. We're going to see great displays of glory. And what does Jesus say? Look at verse 31. He says the son of man must <gasps> He must suffer. But he's the Christ. Do you see the shock? Do you see it? I mean, surely he means the Son of Man must rule. He must reign. Now he's the Son of Man. The Son of Man must suffer. Do you see, friends, how shocking this must have been to the twelve? Now, I think it is actually important that we don't go too far with this. You see what I mean? Jesus is not saying the son of man must suffer. He's not saying that to the people. The son of man must suffer and that's going to be it, men. He's not saying, I'm going to die and that's it. If you pay close attention to the end of the verse, what does Jesus make clear? End of verse 31. He makes clear he is going to rise again from the dead. So this isn't a message of ultimate defeat. It's not a message of eventual destruction. It's not. But what is it? It is a message that the glorification of the Son of God, the glorification, exaltation of Jesus, it will happen, but how? It's going to happen through suffering, and it is going to happen through death. That is the message. And so this is what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to put yourselves in the shoes of the disciples. And just think about how their breath is taken away. I mean, think about the message they are receiving. The Lord Almighty, not come to conquer, but to come and suffer pain. Like the Jewish Messiah. Not as they'd expected to to come and win this political victory, but he's he's to come and suffer and, and die an awful death. The Son of Man. Not come to be crowned instantly king, but what was the word there? He has come to be rejected. Isn't it the most horrible word in the human language? And rejected by whom? Not by thieves, not by the wicked, not by murderers. What does he say? By the teachers of the law. Like the very people who have been appointed to point other people to him. Rejected. Don't you see how awful this is don't you see friends how shocking this is the son of man he must suffer many many things now we know the scene everyone in this room is familiar with the scene Uh, we're in a shopping center or we are walking along a high street with all the shops and up ahead of us what do we see but a child rebelling against its parents. You've seen that? A little kids, you know, on the shopping street, you know, they're not enjoying the shopping spree at all, and they're, 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 they're rebelling, they're acting up, they're shouting, and they're screaming. Now, what does a parent do at that moment? If your parents in here, you've been there a hundred times, I'm guessing, what does a parent do? Well, a conscientious parent will take that kid by the scruff of the neck, won't they? Uh, and by their collar and they'll drag them off to the side maybe to an alcove in the high street and they will give them a row won't they? you can see they've probably seen you will know, what past parents doing that I'm very familiar with the scene let me tell you but the parent will drag them off to the side and will tear strips off the child we've seen it we've all seen it isn't it utterly amazing to see that sort of scene In Mark chapter 8. Because think about this. Jesus announces that his mission will involve suffering. And Peter hates this so much. What does he do? Isn't Isn't it amazing? I mean, who's Jesus? Jesus is the incarnate son of almighty God. And what does Peter do? It's like he takes him by the scruff of the neck. And he takes Jesus off to the side. Doesn't he? Away from the other 11 disciples. Takes him off to the side. And he begins to give Jesus a row. I mean, he begins to rebuke. Isn't it? Aren't you staggered? Isn't that amazing? Now, as amazing as that is, it is nothing compared with Jesus' reaction to Peter here. Now, you just listen to me. And imagine what's going on here. Peter's taking him off to the side. And Jesus looks at Peter. And what does he say? He says, Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Now that's incredible, isn't it? At this moment where it is just Jesus and the twelve disciples together that Jesus is referencing Satan. So, (coughs) let me ask you this. Do you see what's happening? Do you? That at this crucial juncture in Mark's gospel, this incredibly important moment where Jesus is at last unveiling something of the suffering that awaits for him, who is it that has come to Jesus? Do you see the devil again has appeared? And, oh, not as before, when he came to Jesus to tempt the Lord by himself. Don't you see that it's much more devious? Don't you see it's much more deceptive here that Satan has come and what has he done to tempt Jesus? He is using a human agent this time. That he's using, he's using Peter. That he is using to tempt Jesus someone that Jesus loves. And I, I guess you can almost hear what Peter's saying. Take him into the side and says, "Suffer, Lord! You don't have to suffer. You don't have to die. We just stop. You are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of Man. You don't have to suffer. You do not have to die." Friends, in here, just now, if we are going to understand the importance of this interaction, there is this tiny little detail in the text that I want us to get, all right? Now, before we look at the little detail, we've got to get the scene right. So you're with me with the scene. Do you see what's happening? You've got Jesus and Peter, and they're off to one side, and there is this satanic temptation to try and get jesus to avoid suffering and death right they're off to the side who else is in the scene you've got the 11 disciples and they are just a little way off aren't they now here's the thing you with me just now just before jesus responds to this temptation what does he do look at it verse 33 do you see what he does? Isn't it interesting? Just before he turns, at like this climax of all this temptation and Satan using Peter, what does Jesus do? He turns his head and he looks at the 11 disciples. Or the ESV has got it like this, but at this point of it's Jesus and Peter and Jesus just about respond, the ESV says that seeing the disciples, turning, seeing the disciples, he then turns back. Now I'm, I'm asking you, what's that about? Like what on earth is that Luke to the other disciples about? Well I think two things. I think probably most obviously Jesus turns to the eleven disciples so that they will hear his rebuke of the evil one. You're with me there, right? But I think surely there is a second thing going on. Because isn't this true? That that look to the 11 disciples, it would have served as an incredible reminder to Jesus of what was at stake. Like, wouldn't Jesus have seen in the eyes of those, in the faces of those 11 men, the utter necessity of his suffering and death. That without his suffering and death, what was true? He turns and sees those 11 men, those 11 beloved men that they will certainly die but how without my suffering and death they will die in their sin so friends what I would ask you to do is to consider these truths that we're seeing in Mark's gospel but wait consider them and consider, consider their bearing on your very own soul because I think this that surely this juncture in Mark's gospel, where you are today, this morning, by Almighty God, being shown again what Christ did for you, I don't think that this crucial juncture should leave you nor me unmoved. Because consider what was done for you if you're a Christian this morning. I mean, what is it that Jesus says here? Does he say, for your salvation, the Son of Man might suffer? He don't say that. doesn't say, the Son of Man, for you, he could possibly suffer. He says to save you, to save you from sin, from the devil, from condemnation. What was true? The Son of Man must suffer. And he must suffer many, many, many things. And so perhaps it's true, and I guess it's true. Perhaps it's true that as Jesus turned to those 11 men, that he saw your face too. And he saw the faces of all the people that he would win from death. Because what did he do? He turns back. He rebukes Peter. He dismisses Satan. And he heads on towards the cross. We see here a shock about Messiahship. The Son of Man must suffer. We said two headings this morning. This is the second of our headings. We also see in this portion of Scripture a shock, a further shock, but a shock about discipleship. So we've seen a shock about messiahship. Secondly, a shock about discipleship. Now, uh, amongst the, the problems facing the church in the United Kingdom in London, let's say, in the 21st century is a problem that some of you have encountered and it's a problem that we've talked about before and it's the problem of what's called the prosperity gospel. Um, Do you know what the prosperity gospel, somebody speaks to you about the prosperity gospel, do you know what it is? I think uh, the prosperity gospel I'll say this, it's heretical teaching. It's unbiblical teaching. But it's probably best summed up in this quote that I'll give you that comes from one of the chief proponents of the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth message. So he says this. See if you agree with this. He says, God wants Christians to prosper financially. God wants Christians to have plenty of money. God wants uh, Christians to fulfill the destiny that he has laid out for them. Okay, I'm hoping. I am hoping that certainly if you're a regular LCPC, there's an error there. And hopefully you see that that is not God's primary desire for your life. I hope you see that. Even if you see that, it still raises a question for us, doesn't it? How do we view Christian discipleship? The, the life that, that God has called us to, how do we view this? Like, okay, you're with me, are you? That, that we're, it's not about seizing the moment, and it's not about making ourselves rich. We, we know that, but what is it about? Like what does it mean actually to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? Well I'll tell you what, do this. Think about the disciples at this moment in Mark's Gospel. How do you think they would have been viewing Christian discipleship? Can I tell you what I think? I think that they'd be very, very excited about following Jesus. Do you not think so? Surely. Like they've just toured Galilee and they've seen Jesus perform all these just miraculous feats and then they've just discovered by the Holy Spirit that the one they've been following is the Christ the one that they've been waiting for so they're excited and yes, okay you know, he's just told them that he's going to have to suffer but you see maybe what they're thinking he's going to have to suffer but, you know, there's nothing to say that we're going to have to suffer because after all, he's the son of man Like he's the Christ and and surely he's going to use all of his power to protect us. You see? Well, here's the deal. There is for these excited disciples just now a second almighty shock. have a look at verse 34. Jesus drops a further bombshell, doesn't he? Look at verse 34. So he said that he will have to suffer. Look at the verse. It says, if anyone would come after me, he must. Look at the next two words. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. What does that mean? I mean, you know, Jesus is explaining to us the Christian life. What does it mean for you and for me to deny ourselves? Like, is it, as so many people throughout the centuries have believed, is it about denying ourselves things we enjoy for a limited time in order to sort of advance our spiritual well-being? You know, like, oh, deny myself chocolate or alcohol for a little bit of time in order to benefit my soul. Is that what it is? Deny yourself? No. It's not, and, and friends, if you Get nothing else out of this sermon this morning. Would you listen to me on this point? That what Jesus is calling for here is an all-encompassing submission to his lordship in our lives. Did you hear me there? He's calling for an all-encompassing submission to his lordship in our lives. That in entrusting Jesus Christ, what are we actually supposed to do? We are supposed to replace our own will with God's will as the central driving force in our lives. Are you understanding that? Are you, you seeing how dramatic this is? What does it mean to deny ourselves? What does it mean? Well, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not half-heartedly, nominally sort of identifying ourselves as Christians and, oh, must observe Lent. That's not what it is. What does it mean to deny ourselves? Oh, listen to me, please. It means throwing ourselves at the feet of Jesus in repentance. And it means this. Radically, comprehensively yielding ourselves to him, the Lord of glory. Now I'm looking around the church and there's, there's a number of you that are visiting the congregation just now. And there may be in this room a number of you this morning that, that, that are thinking just now, he's mad. He's mad. That's not what it means to be a Christian. Are you thinking that? Are you thinking, no, to be a Christian means to follow God, to believe. I believe in God. And okay, it won't be the smoothest ride in the world, but it'll be fine. If you're thinking that, you haven't read the text. Because what comes next? Look at it. He must deny himself. Next words, he must take up his cross. And I'm saying to you, think about what that would have meant to Peter. To Peter and to the other disciples, can you take up the cross? I mean, this was the Roman form of execution, wasn't it? It conjures up for the twelve this image of a man having that crossbar of crucifixion strapped to him, thrust along the road that leads to certain death. That's the image he uses. Don't you see? Jesus is not calling for lukewarm belief. He's calling for something greater, and don't you see what it is? He's calling for people to follow him in his own path of pain. Isn't that it? That the suffering of Jesus in a very real way is the prototype for his people. What should we expect? What must be true for you and me? We too following our Lord, we also must be willing To lose our lives for his glory. And I want to, I just want to apply that two ways. One to the Christian and the other to those who are not. First thing I want to do though is to put the kids to the test. So the boys and girls, I hope you're listening and awake. I've asked you a question on your worksheet. Some of you are doing the worksheet I've asked you this question at this point in the story when Jesus speaks about what it costs to follow him here's the question who is he speaking to, boys and girls? who is Jesus speaking to? and with slight trepidation I will say shout out the answer who is Jesus speaking to? nobody? none of the boys and girls know who Jesus is speaking to give you a clue verse 34, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to Peter. That is a good answer. He's speaking to more than Peter. No. Martin has got it at the front here. Martin has said he's speaking to everyone. See what he's done? In that first half that we looked at, Jesus spoke to the twelve. And then in this next bit, when he's talking about discipleship, what has he done? As Martin says, he is called the crowd to himself. He is not just speaking to the twelve. He is speaking to everyone here. And so to apply that to the Christians here, do you see what that means? It means that this radical discipleship that Jesus is calling for here is not just for church leaders. It's for anyone who will follow Christ. Christ. I say that again, he's called everyone, not just the twelve, he's called everyone, don't you see? This call, radical, comprehensive, obedience, discipleship, it's not just for church leaders, it's for anyone who will follow him. And that's surely a bit of a problem, isn't it? When we think about it and analyze it and break it apart a little bit, because isn't this true that sometimes, actually, we've got higher standards for those in church leadership than we do for ourselves. Do you agree with that? Do you see what I mean by that? We are much quicker, I think, to identify a spiritual deficiency in an elder, much quicker to identify a spiritual deficiency in a missionary than we are to recognize that spiritual deficiency in our own hearts. And you see the lesson here. This call to deny yourself and take up your cross, it's for whom? It is for you. And it's for you and it is for me. We are all as Christians to be dying to self and pursuing God's will in every area of our lives. And then I'll close with a second application to the people in here who have not yet given their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not born again, listen to this. I'll ask you to do one thing this morning. And it's simply this, to consider following the Lord Jesus Christ in the way, not in the way that you want, but in the way that he maps out in these verses. And you see what that means, don't you? To consider not just continuing a toy with church, not just con- continuing in sort of nominalism or continuing with apathy towards the name and the glory of Jesus. No, no. But actually this morning to give great consideration to loving the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart and all your soul and bowing to Jesus in everything you are. Because I'm reckoning if you've paid any attention to the text, you see what's at stake don't you? Jesus makes it very clear here that your eternal life is on the line. and I'll, I'll say this to you. you can get that qualification that you're going for, and you can get that job, that promotion, you can get that family, you can get that spouse, you can get that house, you can get that car, you can get that holiday, you can get it all. You can get it all. But what does Almighty God say to you this morning? Do you see what it is? He says, what good is it? What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? So you see why there's urgency, do you? Can I tell you why there's urgency here and what I'm saying to you this morning? Ready? It is because the Son of Man is coming back. The Son of Man. The Christ is coming back and he shall on that day preside over judgment. What he makes clear here is that for all those who are ashamed of Jesus in this life, there will on that day be nothing but shame forthcoming. But for all those who love Jesus, for all those who follow Jesus in the way that he maps out here, what happens on that day? What happens? the glory that now belongs to Jesus through his suffering and because of his death and in his resurrection, ascension, exaltation, that glory on that day, it will be lavished upon all of his people. So I'm hoping every one of us in here, every single person in here sees this morning in light of this, what must be done, what must we do, all of us, we must bow, isn't that right? And we must worship the suffering servant. We must bow and worship the Son of Man. Let's pray.